All right, all right, here we go. This is the first episode of season two of The Techie and the Cowboy. My name is Alistair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And this is T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. New season, new set of topics. How you feel, T.W.? I'm excited. We're going to jump right in with the topic that, you know, it's funny because I posted about this not too long ago on Facebook, and I got a lot of private message response, which kind of leads into the stigma. Not a lot of likes, but I got some private message response, but we're talking about what is a man and the stigma that comes along with being a man, the macho-ness that comes along with being a man, some of the stigmas that we have about self-care and taking care of ourselves. So we're going to dive right into it. But let's do, before we drop the intro, let's give a little preview of what it is that we're going to talk about. So what are some of the things that you have listed as, a, you know, some of the things that make us a quote-unquote man? Well, there's kind of a list that I saw encapsulated in a really good article. And there were five that I saw. One is about controlling emotions and passions. One is about providing for family. One is about protecting family. The other is serving and leading a family and then following God's design to what it is to be a man. Absolutely. So we're going to hop in all of these right after we drop our brand new Techie and the Cowboy intro. Let's hit it. And now a few minutes with two of my friends who will soon be yours, the Techie and the Cowboy. All right, season two, episode one. Let's jump right into it. So what is a man to you, TW? I mean, what defines you as a man? Well, one of the things that you have to keep in mind in this discussion is that I'm considerably older than you are, uh, roughly twice your age. So I was raised in the 50s and 60s when the stereotype that we have now was really stirred a good bit in the pot because just as my father was, most of the men who were adults when I was a kid were veterans of World War II and survivors of the Depression and things like that. So their view of what it took to be that person had been seasoned in those two very big events. And at the time, women were mostly stay-at-home moms. They, uh, most people didn't know the difference until World War II came along and all the men were overseas and we got Rosie the Riveter and women started going out. And that was the beginning of the change and the changes carried on to this day. So that being raised by my father, who gave me a set of 18 rules, my view of what it takes to be a man might be, oh, let's call it more Neanderthal than what yours is having grown up differently. Absolutely. And it's funny because I'm in that generation, Generation X, that's right in the middle of everything. Like my generation got to see the internet become a thing. We've lived in a world without technology being uh, a dependency and being technology being a dependency. So I've got to really live in that transition generation where I've seen kind of both sides of it. So being raised by a dad like you who came up in an era where it is that he instilled a lot of things of what men do, men don't hit women, you know, which are good things to be able to instill into you, but also men are the providers and always take care of the family uh, with all the stigmas associated with that. And then also being an era where I see lots of stay-at-home dads and have friends that are stay-at-home dads or that work from home and, and being somebody who it is that whenever my now nine-year-old, uh, he got to hang out with me. He never had to go into daycare. So he hung out with me a lot, a good majority of the time. So I got to be the, I wasn't a stay-at-home dad, but I got to be the dad that watched the kid as well. So it's, it's very interesting being able to be on both sides of the, 
of the fans is seeing both sides of it. Another thing that contributes to that is you have to remember that in my relationship, in my marriage, my wife was close to my age, she's a year or so younger. And so she grew up kind of with the same thing. She watched her father, who was a veteran of World War II, and how he treated her mom, and that kind of thing. So the expectations for me are different than you and your wife. For example, one of the rules that she really enjoys is, the rule I have is that Lawrence women don't pump gas. Whenever we go, if, if we're in her car, my car, whatever, I'm always the one that gets out and pumps the gas. She does not unless she's by herself. <laughs> you know, it's that's a, a, a form my, of chivalry, but she appreciates it. Oh, you know, and I, my dad taught me that as well, that I get out and I, I pump gas and still hold doors and all that kind of stuff as well that I was ingrained in me. I don't know if I made it a rule, but when he just suspects that when we pull up, that I'm going to get out. But, what, she doesn't what get is, out. <laughs> yeah, well, what is unusual is that uh, the younger of two daughters that Fran has, we were, were all together doing something that was just uh, Fran, me, and and the girl. And we pulled into Costco and it was time to get gas. And, and we were in Fran's car and Fran was driving. I got out, pumped the gas, got back in. No big deal. Later on, the daughter said to Fran, does he always pump the gas? My husband has never gotten out in the 11 years we've been married. Different day, different age. And then that brings up a good point, what you said, because if you look at some of the things that we see younger gentlemen do and some of the things we see younger women allow them to do, it's because they don't expect it. I mean, there's there's a saying, and I see the memes all the time, chivalry is dead. Chivalry's not dead. It just hasn't been taught, right? It hasn't been passed on, right? No, it's, and of course, you know, you know with, with my age and, the, and the, the white in my beard and that kind of stuff, when I'm going to school or in buildings and stuff like that, even for women, young or old, I will hold the door open. And if I get a funny look from a younger girl, I just say, I'm old school. And, and they go, oh, okay, yeah, you're one of those old guys that does this kind of stuff. So to be expected. So I get to do what I was trained to do and not offend anyone because they say, okay, you're from a different generation. You expect that. We'll you know, we'll go along with it, but it's convenient. Even today I was at the post office and there was a woman who parked in the handicap spot right in front of the post office as I was going in. I could see she was having trouble walking. She did not have a walker, but I stood there and I held the door and she said, thank you, young man. <laughs> and I said, you're welcome. And I went on to my car. It's funny that I like that we're talking about some of the good things that are instilled in us that comes along with that. One of the things that my dad instilled in me, really in all of us as kids, and both my parents, I would say, as well, but my dad really hammered it in. He was the enforcer, right? <laughs> so, so even though both my parents taught something, he was the one that made sure it happened. And one of those things is if somebody is older than you, then it's yes, sir, yes, ma'am, or you call them by Mr. and Mrs. in their first name, right? And we've instilled this in our kids, too, with the Mr. and Mrs. part. Uh, and then the yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, my kids hear me do it all the time. But it's funny, in today's day and time, people will get offended if it is that you call them ma'am. And it's a Southern thing, too, I guess, just being in Texas or whatever else. But it's always yes, ma'am, no, sir. It's just a sign of respect and honor of first you being my elder. I don't care if you're two years older or five years older. As long as it is that you respect me, I will give that respect back. Now, we can go into a whole different subject with disrespect aspect of it um but i just by default yes ma'am no sir whatever else and either people are surprised by it like they like it but i've had a couple of people say you make me feel like it is i'm an old person do not call me ma'am anymore do not call me i never heard her sir but do not call me ma'am anymore because i'm not your mom 
I'm not your mom's age, right? And it's just, they're not used to it, so therefore they immediately jump to the defensive on it as well. So how crazy is that? Well, one of the, uh, as I said in the list that I had, uh, the first one the, in the order in which this article that I read uh, to kind of remind myself and do some research was, a man controls his emotions and passions. And I know that we off mic talked about, you know, things like I was brought up, uh, a man, a boy doesn't cry. He yep. doesn't show his emotions. He holds that inside and eventually has a heart attack, boom, dies. And so <laughs> people are, are, are more open, men are more off, open about sharing their feelings. But I would say, and we can talk about this, there is a difference between sharing your feelings and having control of your passions, which includes things like beating your wife, <laughs> having lust for another woman, having an affair with another woman, watching pornography, whatever that is. You, as a godly man, should control your passions because it is the right thing to do. Because left alone, we'd just be an animal in the wild flailing away at everything. Yeah, I think that's one of the stigmas that have stuck around over time is the whole men shouldn't show their emotion. It's funny that you say that, you know, we as godly men should be able to control that. But if it was that easy, then, uh, you know, everybody would just be able to stop drinking, stop smoking, uh, stop everything it is that they're doing. You know what I mean? We have there's a lot of layers to, to <laughs> dealing with what it is that we should do versus in the moment. Uh, giving into our temptation and our passion, right? Yes, uh, so, just ask King David. <laughs> right. So, so no judgment there at all. But at the same time, it goes back to the source. Whenever it is that men have lost their purpose or feel like it is that they're not aligned with what it is that they think they should be doing, that's whenever it is that uh, I see in a recurring pattern that men do stuff that's outside of their character. Whenever it is that they can't control, and this is one of the, the side effects of all these different stigmas that we have, is that we have all these things that we put pressure on and expect out of ourselves. And whenever it is that we cannot meet those expectations on a regular basis, now we look for something else that we can actually control because we want that sense of control. And knowing that there really is no such thing as control inside of life. Life is going to happen and sometimes life life's on you. And, uh, you know, God is 100% control of what's going to happen. But when we feel like it is we don't have that control, that's when it is that we're more likely to be able to do stuff outside of character. And that's when we're most vulnerable to fall into those temptations. But still, I think that, you know, even if you feel helpless because you cannot control the world and you cannot get those things done, there's still, in my humble personal opinion, there's still no reason why anyone, men in particular, since we have, you know, more muscle mass than women do, that you can't treat other people, particularly women, and in particular, your wife, there, in, there is no reason why you cannot treat them with love, respect, and dignity. That's part of the def definition of a man, because he feels comfortable enough with himself, knowing that he is a child of God, and that if he is a believer, he is saved, that I can treat people with the way that I am treated by the Father and the Son. A lot of what you say is rooted in your upbringing. We talked about this is a lot of this is learned behavior. You said your dad is still with you a list of things that make you a man. And my dad always talked about the things that make me a man. So 
we have to look at the other side, people who it is that have fathers that don't instill those values or do opposite of that values. And what they learned was seeing a man, what they thought was a man and their example of a man do things that aren't morally and ethically right. Right. And so they learn this behavior and they have to unlearn and make a decision and make a decision to switch, whether it's decision to be able to follow the Lord, whether it's decision that they're just not going to be the same person that their dad was. But at some point they have to make that decision, that switch that they're not going to be that they're going to be something else. That doesn't mean that some of those things don't come back to haunt them. Some of those learned patterns, behavior that are subconsciously planted don't come back to haunt them. It just means that they have to work twice as hard. So much respect for those people who have made a conscious decision to be able to do something else, uh, do something different than what it is that they saw, what it is that they learned. I know one of my friends who came up in a a household of all guys, his uncles, his dads, or whatever else that uh, abused their wives and spoke uh, horribly to their wives, like verbally and mentally abused their wives. Um, and so he made a conscious decision that he was not going to be that person. He made a conscious decision that he's going to honor his wife and go exactly the opposite direction. Uh, but it does not mean that some of those things and everything else that ha- he saw growing up does not come back to haunt him every once in a while. As an interesting story, given that, you know, the macho nature, macho in the bad respect nature that uh, men of the 50s had, I can remember one time when my s- sister who was two years older than me uh, was being fussed at I thought unfairly by my father in the kitchen and I stepped between them and I wasn't as big as he was but you know I squared off against him told her to to leave the room and just said you know this you know whatever it was I said letting him know it was not good and he looked at me like it was mixed emotions one he couldn't believe that you know this kid was affronting him. I was, I guess, 14 at the time, something like that. But at the same time, and he told me later, I was proud of you for being willing to get the stuffing knocked out of you because you did something you believed in and you were protecting someone you thought was weaker. My dad must have sensed that we were talking about him. He just called me out of the blue. He's like, he's like, he felt his ears burning a little bit, right? Okay. I, I have one of those movies. Make, make clear to him, I was not talking about it. <laughs> it it's funny because I had one of those moments with my dad, too. My, the most famous statement that he said, he's like, look, there's only room for one man in this house. And anytime that you feel like you want to be that man, you got one or two choices. You can take me on or you can move out. <laughs> Right? He said, believe me, you're not going to win if you take me on. Right? Well, it was, it was that moment in, the, uh, in our relationship that uh, I remembered for the first time in a long time that my dad boxed in college. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten that. But fortunately, he was just kind of whapping on my shoulders as opposed to my face. Yeah, yeah my, I never got to that point. I bowed down quickly. My dad is not a, a smaller dude than me, especially at that time. <laughs> but do you know what it, you know what it's like later on in life when you're managing a group of people and stuff? I remember what first time I ever said it in this meeting, and it was mostly guys that in in my group. I said, you know, it's kind of like that time you had that first fist fight with your dad, and they all went, "What? <laughs> like, oh, just me, huh?" 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, like I said, it's a different era, different time. So as you look at the different generations, you have a different set of morals and values that were instilled, especially now that they're saying, you know, all statistics are saying that the youngest generation is moving away from the church and moving away from just having a Christian principle-based family structure, right? And so with that being said, then what you said is great. You know, you said with the with your relationship with God and the respect that you have for God as a man, you should do X. But what happens whenever it is that the, that person has A, never been taught those things, and B, doesn't have a foundation that's based in a God or a Christian or a Christian values? Well, I know you know have talked about it before. That's one of the that is a reason that some young men gravitate toward gangs is because they get the feeling of acceptance. They get the feeling of a, of a role model with the hierarchy being up there and they, and they learn what they think is being a man. It's being a, a, a man of the gang. So they learn that aspect. Whereas I and you learned the, the Christian aspect of it. I remember reading uh, one of the ball players. He said that he said, you know, whenever it is that I was living in the projects, he said, I saw the guys who respected their wives. I saw them that worked and everything else like that, but they never seemed to have time for anybody besides their work, their family. And they really focused on that. So they were kind of distant to me, but the ones that did pay attention to me were the ones that said you need to womanize. And the ones that were the pimps and the drug dealers and the gang members or whatever else, those took me under the wing because they wanted another person to be able to uh, join their, their crew. Right? So those are the ones that, paid a lot of attention. Those are the ones that you aspired to be. Those are the ones that were driving the cars that you wanted to be able to drive and, you know, doing the things and wearing the stuff that you wanted to be able to wear. He said, I had access to those people, but those people were trying to get out of the projects. Those people were trying to leave. So they were laser focused on what they need to take care of their family, the work and what's going on in their world. They weren't looking to be able to help people like me. So he said, I was raised by the wrong type of people. Matter of fact, it was a Christian rapper, wasn't a ball player. Christian rapper said that he said, I was raised by the wrong type of people by default because I didn't have a father in the home and I was looking for that father figure and they were the closest thing available to me. Yeah. And it's too bad, of course, uh, with kids that young, they don't have the perspective of age. They can't look ahead and say, living this life ultimately is not satisfying. Yeah, I can get I can get the clothes, I can get the cars, I can get the drugs, whatever, but still I'm left empty. Yeah. And he said that he didn't even know there was a way out. To him, the only way that you would be able to get out is if it is that you became an NFL NBA player, right? Or you uh, became somebody famous that way, like a rapper or whatever else. So he said his exits to his situation were so far out of his reach that he didn't even think about that. All right. So what's number two? What do we got else on the list? Uh, number two is a man provides for his family. Man provides for his family. This is a yeah, big one. If, <laughs> if we look at uh, 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own households has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So let's take let's tackle this one from the side of what is providing for the family. I mean, you automatically think money and being the one that actually, uh, you know, pays the bills and everything else like that, because provider, you say, put food on the table and everything else like that. But is that the only way that you could provide? No, I don't think so. Uh, particularly in, in this day and age, it takes, you know, two incomes to keep a household together. How single moms do it, I guess, you know, with assistance and, and that kind of thing, or, or, or a single dad does it, is really tough. But still, as you say, it's more than just 
uh, providing meals and uh, a household. It's, it's, it's providing for, uh, providing them love, uh, encouraging them, helping them to grow, hopefully grow in a Christian way as well. And do it basically take responsibility and acknowledge that responsibility. You know, I was responsible for bringing them into the world. As long as I'm here, I'm going to do what I can to help them be prepared for them existing in this world and uh, doing that. I mean, even like look at the bears in Yellowstone, they teach their cubs how to climb a tree. Things get badged up the tree. Deer teach you how to run away and be mindful of predators and lie down when you got the foliage. So they teach their young that as well. They are providing for their families. I think this is one of the most important stigmas that we need to help men get over is, uh, you know, this whole, I have to be the one that's bringing all the money. I know at least three males, um, you know, who it is, one of which I was Stephen minister for, who it is that once it is that they lost their job or once it is that their income adjusted or once it is that their wives made more money than them, it was such a stigma to them that they started acting outside of their character. Again, whenever it is that you feel like you don't have control, you look for areas that you could have control in. And because they have been raised that I'm supposed to be the one that, one of which believed that the wife should stay at home and not work at all. I should be the sole provider for the family. That's my job as a man, his words, right? And so all of a sudden, whenever he gets laid off, something beyond his control, and the wife now is the one that's bringing the income, it, it taxed him so much that he went into drugs and alcohol and other things to be able to self-medicate, right? Uh, so that stigma could be something that's really powerful and help bring somebody down, which kind of leads into why it is that we need self-care. We need to make sure it is that we're taking care of ourselves along with the family as well. The next one kind of goes along with that, and that is a man protects his family. Now, this one I do agree with, right? Uh, I do believe that it, you are the protector of your family. When it comes to kids, and I say this all the time when I'm speaking, half of it's guesswork anyways. You know, we're guessing about what it is that we're doing based on what it is that we know, what we've read, what we've been taught. But the other part is that all you can do is to be able to give them as much of a solid foundation as possible and hope that once it is that they get to the age where they start making their own decisions, probably in their teens, that they will listen to what it is that you say. So when we say protector, Yes, we look out for them. Yes, whatever else. But there's a thin line between protector and control. Somebody who tries to control their family and protect their family. I think that I can see in the basically the vicinity that I live in, which is I'm at the edge of some affluent people, that you can also uh, shy away from really protecting your offspring by giving them too much too soon and too easily. That uh, taking it from there to when they go out by themselves and things are not given to them, they have a rougher time adjusting. The opposite side of that is withholding them from too much and trying to protect them from too much. So when they get out there in the real world, we saw this a lot whenever we got to college. Those kids that had been super protected and overprotected. Like were, heli helicopter parents? Yeah, like the, yeah, the ones that had the helicopter parents and the ones who had been uh taken away from everything. As soon as they got that taste of freedom, they went completely the opposite direction. These are the ones that got sloshed at the parties. These are the ones that were doing all the stuff that they weren't allowed to do. They wanted to experience it all their freshman year, a lot of which never came back after the freshman year because they had too much fun or they did too much that way. So there is such a thing as uh, trying to overprotect or trying to control your family versus 
you know, trying to protect them. Right. Number four is a man serves and leads his family. The analogy there comes from uh, Ephesians 5, where it says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Goes on to say, now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So I think that's been one of the verses of the Bible that has been misread. In the Christian sense, there still has to be one person who's, I guess, responsible for taking the initiative of things. And in this case, taking the initiative to make sure that the family is walking the path in a Christian way, hopefully looking for the path that specifically God has laid out for each of them. And if it's done correctly, then it should be a unit. You know, the husband and wife as a unit should have a, a united front when it comes to this opinion on what to do with the family and how it is to be able to lead the family. Both of them have to be on the same page, though. And that's a, a big issue as well. Well, interestingly, I, I have two cents of friends, one of whom just has a like six or seven week old baby and is learning to be a, a dad. And he finally said, okay. So my wife and I have figured out when it's time to change the baby, I do A, B, and C, and she does X, Y, and Z. Before that, we were, you know, all, we, uh, all of us was doing it. We we're both losing sleep. Okay. So they worked out the shared responsibilities of being a parent. Whereas the people who have, say, kids in junior high school and stuff talk about, again, shared responsibilities where one of the parents is the one that does all the, uh, I'd say, counseling and uh, encouragement and, and doing that. And the other one is there to make sure that understand these are the rules that your mother and I or uh, your father and I have agreed are the rules that you will live by. And oh, by the way, I am the primary enforcer. Yep. So you kind of got good cop, bad cop, but they have split the duties and they have they are serving their family but still according to scripture the man if he is capable of doing so is the one who tends to take the initiative with it you know and that could be uh, that can wear out a guy you know what i mean having to be the enforcer all the time having to be the one that actually enforces and i've seen families where it's the opposite direction the dad is the fun one the dad's the one that doesn't have to enforce the mom's always enforcing and the dad is the one that comes in and actually does the fun stuff right which will wear on the mom all the time because it seems like the mom is the bad guy and the dad is the one that's like oh well your mom said so we got to go do it right but then i've seen uh, the more more likely scenario, the one that I see the more most in my friends is where it is that the dad is working all the time and, and doing all of the work. And when he comes home and then, oh, wait till your dad gets home, the famous statement, wait till your dad gets home. I'm going to tell him. And he becomes the enforcer. So he has to be the one that actually, you know, puts the foot down and puts the nail down and does the discipline and all of that kind of stuff. Either side can be very, very wearing on a relationship. What do we got next on the list? A man follows God's design for true masculinity. And that comes from Micah. It says, he, meaning God, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So the, the, this tenet of being a true man is to recognize that you should be just. Mercy is a form of 
and so at one end of of justice showing mercy, but it also talks about being humble, not thinking you're better than everybody else, not being too macho, not beating up on everybody, particularly your kids and your wife, but also to walk and have a relationship with God. Man, you can almost do a whole podcast session on just that one point by itself. And I wish there was a 101 class that taught these different principles that every man had to be able to take. But again, I think it goes back to your dedication and your devotion, uh, you know, to be able to want to be a better man and doing the research and finding the different mentors or whatever else to be able to help you to learn these principles. Well, one of the things that uh, I think is kind of a misnomer in this day and age you know that I sent you a, a, a cartoon drawing that a guy did of me in college, and it's me look like a caveman holding a club and having a loincloth and, and that kind of stuff. And I jokingly say, yes, I am, by today's standards, I am a Neanderthal. It's another way of saying I am old school. But the difference is I don't think that I have to prove anything to anyone by being aggressive. To me, the mistaken notion is showing aggression is part of what it means to be masculine, to which I say, no, it's not. You don't have to do anything. You, know, you just accept, you know, have a good set of values, follow those values, live and let live. But if somebody crosses the line is a threat to you and your family, then you can begin to show your stronger side. But you don't have to, you know, it, it, it takes nothing away from anybody for me to hold the door for anyone. It would be different if I, you know, leered at the women, made comments about the women, that kind of stuff. But to be masculine, I would say, is to know your place with God, to have confidence that because of your salvation, you can act with the mercy, justice, humility, knowing that you walk with God. I, I think that the overt use of aggression is not masculine. It is more Neanderthal. Again, playing the other side, pop culture says exactly opposite of what you're talking about. When you see a movie, what's the first thing they do if they don't like what somebody says? I'm going to fight you. I'm going to pop you in the mouth. The bar fights start because one person said one thing. What'd you say about my mom? What'd you say about my sister? If I don't like what it is that you have to say in the men, in the movie, the manly men, the first thing that they're going to do is fight or hit or attack or whatever else. And, and we kind of grew up in a culture where it is that that was the norm is that, you know, at any moment I'm going to say something, Oh, you said something about my wife. I'm going to defend her by immediately attacking you. Right. And I always said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, the nicest guy in the world until it is that you assault my family or assault my wife. Then we have a whole different situation on our hands. Right. It's different. Alistair comes out. Probably the Pizarro side comes out of, of me when it comes to that. But like you said, we have enough spiritual, and maturity in general to be able to know when it's time to be able to to turn that on and off. Think about the people who don't. Think about the people who grew up with, again, all the different idols that immediately go to fighting or they grew up with just pop culture being their their mentor, being their dad, you know, um, then it's easy for them to just be able to go to the aggression side. Sure. And uh, having dabbled a little bit into screenwriting, I can tell you that one of the things that the movies use as a device is to show conflict. That's what draws the audience in. That's what keeps the audience engaged. That's what, you know, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? It is conflict and uh, them perpetuating this kind of behavior. If everybody acted like Pollyanna in a Walt Disney movie, 
nobody would go to the movie. So that's why, you know, that's there. Oh, but it's, it, it's a quick way to be able to escalate right? the situation in a short amount of time. They just start sure. a fight. <laughs> sure. It's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, I, I won't start fights, but if I am physically threatened or particularly if you threaten my wife, it's kind of like, okay, today is a good day to die and I'm taking you with me. So like, yeah, to perpetuate this fight if you want to, but you're not getting off scot-free. Well, you got the John Wick type of movies. Over three movies, he's, you know, enacting a vengeance by killing everybody in sight, right? I mean, that's, and it's one of the most popular movies of his time right now is you have these movies where it is that the vengeance, the anger, the whatever else, the way to be able to, to fix that is to be able to take massive aggression, right? So again, it's just create, creating that polar opposites and teaching men that there's a, another way to be able to deal with it, which kind of goes into what I want to be as our closing point as we run out of time here, which is self-care and the importance of taking care of yourself, asking for help, looking for resources to be able to get help, which is just not common among men. Almost to the point where it is that uh, men are afraid to, or it's very secretive whenever it is that they finally decide that they need some self-care. Yes, the recognizing when a person, man or woman, but men, since we're talking about it, have reached the end of their own individual resources from doing something for themselves, by themselves, and say, this is beyond me. Uh, I need help because as a responsible person, I need to be able to function at this level. And right now, I cannot, and I can't seem to heal myself. So I need a third party to work this out. Usually it gets to the extremes before it is that guys get to that point. You know, when dealing with grief, especially, or when dealing with whatever else, our whole immediate impulse is to be able to internalize it. Like you said, keep it in until it is that you crack. Um, but the reality of it is it that, you know, we, we do need help. There's certain points where it is that we are overwhelmed and we do need to be able to reach out. Like recently I told TW this, I was like, you know, I decided I wanted to be able to go and start to see a counselor just to be able to talk about all the pressures of being an entrepreneur with several businesses and being a dad and being, you know, the leader in my church and all this different stuff like that. I felt like, okay, this is a time I heard another gentleman talk about on a podcast, how it is that he actually uh, getting self-care was the best thing that he could have did as an entrepreneur, just to have somebody to be able to help him work through all of the different things that are going on in his life. And he talked about how it is when he first went, he parked in the back, right? And he made sure nobody was looking. And he told people he was someplace else because of all the stigmas that go along with guys asking for help. And then he realized after it is that he started getting better from seeing this lady and helping him to be able to work through all this stuff, uh, how silly that was. And, and then he made a podcast talking just about that. And I realized that whenever I went to go get counseling, I was doing the same thing, right? You know, I, was, I didn't necessarily want to tell anybody that I was going and I was trying to find somebody that was on a different side. It just, just, it wasn't even a conscious thing. It was a subconscious thing. Um, so I want to encourage men, if, if it is that you feel like you need help, go get it. Yes. One, let me, uh, end with this quick story uh, that happened to me. I was working with the, the overall message here is that like the guy who parked in the back and didn't want to be seen. I told my friend, if you have a secret, you will become a slave to that secret. It will dictate what you do as opposed to you opening up and dealing with it in the open. A colleague of mine, we were working on a project together. We were actually writing a book together. And he ran uh, one of the things from his past uh, was something that he had told me. And I had worked it into a story because I told my story. I wrote his story uh, as well. He said, we can't possibly publish this because it tells stuff about me. To which I said to him, 
hey, listen, you have a state license. All the stuff that you did is a matter of public record. And he goes, no, it's not. So I went to the website, found him in the appropriate state licensure thing, published all this stuff, put it in an envelope, stuck it on his um, his front porch and emailed him that. I said, look, look at the envelope I've got. The guy missed work for two days because he was so shocked that the world knew this. And I just said, man, like I said, you're just, you're just a victim of your own secret. So better to deal with it in the open than to be eaten away by it. But that's stuff that he intentionally did. I'm talking more about self-care, right? And so when we talk about self-care, this is not something that they, that you should be ashamed of asking for help. But the male stigma actually tells you that, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to, you know, like you said, don't cry, you know, be tough, be, be whatever else and so on and so forth. So you immediately go to that place of being ashamed to be able to ask for help. Yes. And that's my point. He was an extreme at one end of the spectrum example of right. he was made catatonic, paralyzed by the fact that he didn't want anybody to know that this had happened. Just like people don't want others to know, oh, I shed a tear over this or, oh, I asked a counselor for help. It's all on the same continuum line. He was just a extreme example of that. But that's where it can lead if you start denying all this stuff all the way along. Absolutely. So that's why it is that we wanted to do this episode is to really encourage, you know, guys to get out there, really women, any, anybody who needs to be able to get help is to reach out for help. Don't fall into the stigma that self-care is something that makes you weak or self-care is something that makes you less of a person because absolutely the people around you are suffering, even if it is that you don't know. So it's better for you to be able to take care of yourself. So that way you could take care of others. Any closing thoughts, TW? I think that uh, it's uh, a matter of self-awareness and looking at what does it take for me to be my own person because we're all individual as designed by God and to be comfortable with that, knowing that we have a family, which includes having God for our father. Absolutely. So as always, we always encourage for you to be able to reach out and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can visit the Techie and the Cowboy Facebook page. We're on Instagram. And of course, you can always drop us an email. Just go to the techieandthecowboy.com and you can reach out to us and give us feedback there. But this is Alistair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And this is T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. And that will be the end of episode one of season two. And we can't wait to see you guys on the next podcast. Make sure you subscribe. Talk to you soon. That's it for this episode. Join us again next time for The Techie and the Cowboy. Hit us up on our website, thetechieandthecowboy.com. Let us know what y'all think.